they are given with the best of intentions, but I guess making a list of what you would like is the best thing to do so that people would know what to get. I think this happens to God also. We sometimes give him gifts that we think he wants, but what we, what we really should do is check his list. Here are some, some commands from his list. Repent. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Believe. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Love. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Teach. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Shine. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This time, let's give God something on his list. Let's pray. God, help us to be in tune with your will so that we can focus our offerings better in line with what you want. Help us to put our own will aside. Thank you for this church and the opportunities to be a part of your ministry. We ask that you bless this congregation, the leadership and staff, and this offering in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, and good morning. As the ushers are coming forward and collecting the offering, let me say thank you to Ken Klein for sharing our communion and offering meditations with us today and encourage you to multitask. I want you to do a couple things this morning. I want you to put your attendance card and your offering in the baskets as they're passed. I want you to grab your bulletin and your Bible. With your Bible, I want you to turn to 2 Kings 22. And with your bulletin, I want you to be aware of all that's happening in the life of our church. Today's the kickoff carnival. It's a huge day for our children's ministry. A week from Wednesday night, not this Wednesday, but a week from Wednesday night, is the return of families at first. And then two weeks from today, we just have a single service at 9.30 in the morning. Nothing at 8.15, nothing at 11. But that service on the 30th at 9.30 in the morning will be Carson Cheatham's ministry ordination. It'll be a great, great time. And then come back out that night at 7 p.m. for the showing of the movie, Courageous. We are in the middle of Staples Month here at First Christian Church. Last week we looked at staple number two, we're saved only by the grace of God. You can't earn your salvation. Next week we're going to look at staple number four, we remember Jesus Christ and his sacrifice through communion each week at FCC. But this morning we're going to be looking at staple number one, our authority comes only from the word of God. And we're going to put up the next slide here that shows you all six staples of First Christian Church. The six staples, um, they're not the six, the only six things you need to know. They're not even the six most important things that you need to know. But if someone were to move to our community and they've never heard of the independent Christian churches and churches of Christ and you tried to explain to them how we might be a little different than the Methodists or the Assembly of God or other churches, whatever it may be, this might be a good jumping off point. And so this month we're looking at why we feel so strongly about these six staples. So this morning it is our authority comes only from the Word of God, staple number one. 
Uh, the big idea really is this. Our authority as a church, our authority as followers of Jesus Christ should come from the Word of God, God's Word, our Bible, not tradition or culture or human reason. Now, you're probably sitting there saying, well, well of course. Why would we ever take a tradition and place priority with a tradition over the Word of God? How could we ever take the culture today or human reason today and say that it has higher priority or even equal footing with God's Word? Well, guess what, my friends? I know hundreds of people that call themselves followers of Christ. I know dozens of churches and denominations that have done exactly that. They have taken a stand, they have a, an official policy of some sort that seems to very much contradict the truth of God's word, but maybe is very politically correct. It's in line with what culture says is important. Or, or they've really based a truth based on a tradition. So first and foremost, if you get nothing else today, if you're distracted or whatever's going on in your world, understand, staple number one, our authority comes from the Word of God. And I want to illustrate that a little differently. Normally when we look at staple number one, I kind of give you like a shotgun approach. I give you like 17 scriptures that talk about God's Word. And I'm going to give you some scriptures at the end of our service today, end of the sermon today. But I want to start with an account from the history of the nation of Judah late in their existence in the Old Testament that really illustrates how important God's Word really is. So grab your Bibles if you haven't already. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 22. We're going to be looking at the reign of a king of Judah by the name of Josiah. And what's cool about Josiah is Josiah became king at the age of eight. Is anybody in here that's eight years old? If you're eight years old, just stand up right now if you're eight years old. Can you imagine my man being president of the United States? I mean, it just wouldn't happen, right? You're president for today, okay? Now, here's the deal. Josiah became king at the age of eight, and he reigned for 31 years. He became king in 640 B.C., and that was a very, very difficult time in the history of the nation of Judah. The account we're going to read about today didn't take place until he had been king for 18 years. So for all of you math majors out there, how old was he when he made this change? You know, 26, right? You're looking at me kind of funny. 8 plus 18 equals 26, I think. Is that right, Marla? Is that right? Okay, we're good there. All right. So at the age of 26, 18 years into his reign, King Josiah decides something must be done. 622 B.C. Let me give you some history. In 622 B.C., a hundred years had passed since the northern kingdom of Israel had been overrun and destroyed by the nation of Assyria. A hundred years had passed. And the nation of Judah, we know because we're on the other side of history, only had 35 years left before the evil Babylonians would come and lay siege to them and destroy Jerusalem and, and destroy the temple. So this is a dark, dark time in the history of God's people. But in 622 B.C., Josiah decided that something must be done. The temple was in disrepair, and it was time for a restoration. It was time for a renewal. Now, I want you just to look around for a moment at our beautiful sanctuary. And, you know, I love the carpet. We've got the beautiful pews. You've got your stained glass, stained glass. I mean, the walls are nice. What are some words, and this is when you talk back to me, what are some words that you would use to describe the sanctuary at First Christian Church? Okay, I'll help you. Beautiful, right? 
I've had people tell me majestic, reverent, holy are words that people have used me. Every time a visitor uh, who's not from this area comes to visit me, I always show them the sanctuary. Their response is almost always the same. Wow, I had no idea. That's a beautiful, beautiful auditorium. That's a beautiful, beautiful sanctuary. Now, I want you to imagine that we didn't do anything to this room for like 20 years. Didn't do anything at all. We just kept meeting in here on Sundays, and and we did nothing to keep it up. What would this place look like 20 years from now? What do you think? Probably not so great. Carpet would probably be worn down. The wallpaper might be peeling off a little bit. And that's exactly what had happened with the temple. Decades upon decades upon decades of neglect, and it was time to do something about it. And Josiah decides, 18 years into his reign, now's the time to do something. So he calls for a restoration of the temple. In the process of restoring the temple, I mean, they, they just, they gut the place. They go all through there, they're, they're opening closets, and they're, they're looking under pews. They're trying to find whatever they can find. And I will tell you, by the way, that's an interesting process. If you've ever been with Ernie Harvey, when we attack one of his storage rooms in the basement here, he just dumps stuff in there, and then like eight of us have to go clean it out. You, you would never believe what you would find. I don't really have time for this, but I'm going to do it anyway. This is something that we found in one of our storage rooms, and don't be afraid. All right, enough of that. I don't even know why that's here, but that was in a storage room here at our church. When you go through a process like that, you find all kinds of stuff, and the same thing happened to God's people in 622 BC. They found something, something that they'd never seen before, something they'd never considered before. It was a book It was called the Book of Law. Now, you're probably thinking there, a Book of Law, did that have something to do with the the court system of the day? Did that have something to do with the laws of the land of the day? And no, no, it really didn't. You know this Book of Law as the books of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. We call it the Pentateuch, first five books of our Bible. And the tragedy is that in the process of finding it, nobody really knows what they have. So the king says, I've got a great idea. It's a novel idea. Let's have somebody read for us the book of law. And that's exactly what they did. That probably took a while. Those of you who have read through your Bible know that there's an awful lot in the Pentateuch. But when King Josiah finished reading through the book of law, Do you think he sat back with his counsel and said, that was a stimulating intellectual exercise. We'll gather again tomorrow. Is that what he said? No. You know what he did? He tore his clothes and he began to cry out in repentance to his God. Because as he read the books of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, he realized how very far from God's plan for his people had they strayed. If you go on, and we won't do it for time's sake this morning, but you read chapter 23 of 2 Kings, you find out that he begins to do a renewal through the entire land. And he says all of these altars to Baal, they are no more. He smashes them. He has them burned. The Asherah poles are cut down. The shrine to the male prostitutes is no more. And it's verse after verse after verse after verse after verse 
of Josiah saying things must change. See, here's the point. The king reads the, the word of the Lord, the book of law. That's not happened for 75 years. Does it? Everything changes. And, and just kind of in wrapping this up, I want you to listen to the commentary that's shared about Josiah and his reforms. This is the end of chapter 23. It says, neither before Josiah or after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did, catch this, with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength. Does that sound familiar to anyone? In accordance with the law of Moses. And so my conclusion from our little exercise in 1 Kings 22 and 23, is this, the Word of God changed everything. The Word of God changed everything. See, the Word of God has always been important to the Christian church movement. It's always been important within the Restoration Movement. You go back to the founding of our movement here, you go back to our founding, to guys like Alexander Campbell and Walter Scott and Barton W. Stone, the Stone-Campbell movement, forefathers. And they put little mottos into place to try to describe what they thought was most important. And one of the mottos that I absolutely love is this motto right here. Where the Bible speaks, we speak. And where the Bible is silent, we are silent. Where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we are silent. And so I have a question for you this morning. How are we doing with this? How are we doing as a church? How are we doing as individual Christ followers? What do you think? How are we doing? Where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we are silent. Well, I want to do something that's kind of dangerous. Some of you are going to be angry with me. And my email, by the way, is greg at clintonfcc.com. So feel free to shoot me off an email if you want to. But I want to look at some issues facing us today here in Clinton, in America in general, and look at how well we are at speaking where the Bible speaks and being silent where the Bible is silent. And the first issue I want to talk about is an issue that really... Uh, has been a pretty big deal in the community of Clinton lately. If, if you've been listening at all at the coffee shops, or you've been reading the papers, or, or you've just been conversing with fellow residents of DeWitt County, you know that the issue of gambling has kind of been a big deal. It's been kind of a firestorm in a lot of ways. I said in first service, I think I've had 20 conversations with 20 different people the last six weeks on the issue of gambling. And so I want to just ask you this morning, what's God's word have to say about gambling? Do you know? What's that? Okay, and they cast lots. Well, yeah, that, that's kind, kind of not really, but yeah, that, that, they cast lots over Jesus' clothes. But does the Bible take a stand on gambling? What do you think? Just think about that for a moment. I did a little Google search. Do you guys ever do Google searches? I love Google searches, by the way. And I just put in there, what does the Bible say about gambling? And I found this document. I don't really even know who it's from. But it's 28 Bible verses about gambling. Four pages, front and back. And guess what the problem is with all 28 of these verses? It doesn't talk about gambling at all. Now, it talks about the love of money, which is incredibly, incredibly problematic for many of us. It talks about issues that we need to be aware of related to material possessions. And if you are gambling and you have the love of money, what a problem it will be. 28 verses on what the Bible has to say about gambling, and not one time in those 28 verses do you see gambling described. So what do we do with that? 
do, do we get the, the bus fired up and head to Peoria to the Riverboat Casino? I'm not saying that. But I am saying, let's speak where the Bible speaks. Let's be si- Some of you are thinking that that's what you want to do, right? I can tell it in your eyes. We're not doing that. Ernie, no trip. It's not going to happen. Here's what I would encourage you to do. Be a student of God's Word. Have rolling around in your mind, not just with the issue of gambling, but with all issues related to the love of money. Hear the words of Paul when he says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Hear the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mountain when he says, no one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Listen to the writer of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verse 10, Solomon, that says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Speak where the Bible speaks. Silent where the Bible is silent. Let's move on to a second issue that is a a huge issue in our culture today. And it's the issue of, I'm going to call it sexual freedom. And uh, I, I don't know any nice way to say this, we've got a problem culturally. It's not just the HBO and Cinemax late at night problem. It's not just the cable TV or satellite TV problem. It is all around us. Some of the the highest rated television shows uh, during primetime television are shows about how women can creatively commit adultery. Our teenagers today, I mean, my heart breaks for so many of you because you're getting so many mixed messages. Do whatever you want. If it feels good, do it. Have no boundaries whatsoever. What's God's word say about sexual freedom? What do you think? Can you think of any verses off the top of your head? God's word address it? Let me give you a couple. Paul put it like this in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, flee sexual immorality. Run from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. He's even more more strong speaking to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he says, For this is the will of God, that you be sanctified, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And Jesus himself, in the Sermon on the Mount, you remember this? He said, You've heard it said long ago, do not commit adultery. What did he say next? He said, but I tell you, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in her heart. Now, I know this isn't a problem for any of the men here this morning in this auditorium, but i got to tell you guys, a lot of men struggle with lust. A lot of Christian men struggle with lust. Let's speak where the Bible speaks. Let's be silent where the Bible is silent. And just a caveat I want to throw in there. October at our church is going to be uncomfortable for many of you. I'm going to take the entire month, and I'm preaching a four-week series entitled Designer Sex. And um, it's going to be uncomfortable for some of It's going to be uncomfortable for me preaching it. Let me just say that. But I am convinced we have to find out, we have to know what God's Word says about this issue that is so problematic for so many. Let's move on. Issue number three. Jesus talked an awful lot, I believe, about caring for the poor and the needy. What's God's Word say? about caring for the poor and the needy. Well, for time's sake, let me just give you some scriptures here. In Luke 12, Jesus said, Sell your possessions, give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near, where no moth destroys. 
When speaking to the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18, Jesus said, uh, the rich young ruler came to him and said, I want to go to heaven. Jesus said, keep all the commandments. He said, good news, I've kept all ten. I've known them since I was a little boy. I'm ten for ten. Jesus said, not such good news. You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, then you'll find treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And you don't see anywhere in Luke 18 this rich young ruler following after Jesus, becoming a disciple. Jesus, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, put it like this. I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. And in James chapter 1, James may be the most practical book in the Bible. He says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I told you I've had about 20 different conversations with 20 different people over the last six weeks about gambling. Just take a guess this morning. How many conversations do you think I've had over those same six weeks with people concerned about the poor and the needy in our community? What do you think? One. One. Barb Baker, head of our benevolence ministry, our food pantry, came almost in tears, said, we got a problem. What are we going to do? And some of the first people to respond, by the way, were your fourth and fifth grade students. Praise the Lord. It's a sad commentary when we're more fired up about something the Bible doesn't even address than something that broke the very heart of Jesus. We speak where the Bible speaks. We're silent where the Bible is silent. I should just quit right now while I'm behind. I should just stop and not go to number four, but hey, uh, it's in the notes. It's on the screen. We're moving right ahead. Number four, get those emails ready. What does the Bible teach about social drinking? Now, I want to make a really clear distinction. I'm not talking about drunkenness. You can't read any scripture anywhere in the Bible and find drunkenness uh, commended. It is always condemned. And when you read Paul's list that talk about some of the most evil things you can be a part of, drunkenness is always in those lists. I also want to be clear to my friends that inhabit the first couple rows up here. The Bible is crystal clear that we are to obey the laws of the land. So if you're under 21, it's crystal clear. You may not drink, bottom line. I want to make it really clear that the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 14 said, if you do anything that causes your brother or your sister to stumble, you should stop. So if you have an alcoholic friend or someone that's really struggling, you shouldn't drink. It's what God's Word has to say. But here's the conundrum. Here's the problem. Is that if you did a word study on the Bible and drinking, you would find many, many, many places, several in the Old Testament, that consider wine a gift from the Lord. Jesus, in John chapter 7, talked about how John the Baptist came, and he wasn't eating meat, and he wasn't drinking wine, but the Son of Man came eating and drinking. What am I trying to say? Am I trying to say, let's grab a 12-pack after church today? I'm not trying to say that. I'm, I'm let me be clear. I am not saying that, okay? I don't want to read on Facebook tonight for many of you, our preacher said get a 12-pack of Bud Light and head to the river. I did not say that at all. Don't put that in Facebook, please. A couple years ago, I was hosting a radio show, a Christian radio show in Decatur for my friend Wayne Kent, and the topic of drinking came up. 
and there was a really good discussion, and a minister from Decatur, who will go unnamed, I, I don't really know him, called in, and he said, I can prove to you that the Bible says any and all alcohol is the devil's brew. That, that was his term, not mine. And he said, I'd like to have that opportunity to make my case for you. And I said, come on in. And, and like this paper on gambling, he brought me 37 scriptures, and all 37 scriptures condemned drunkenness. And I said, well, we're on the same page. He said, no, 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 All alcohol is the devil's brew. My friends, what I'm trying to say, probably not very clear this morning, is this. Let's speak where the Bible speaks. Let's be silent where the Bible is silent. Let's be passionate about what Jesus was passionate about. Let's be passionate about what the Apostle Paul was passionate about. Let's be passionate about being salt and being light and allowing God's word to speak authority in our lives and not get fired up about the gray issues of Scripture. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? You, you, you could take ten more issues. I, I could talk about gossip. I could talk about money and material possessions. I mean, that's something that, that all of us deal with in many ways. I could talk about so many different issues. Here, here's what I want to have us do this morning in conclusion. Two must-dos that I want to challenge you to do related to God's Word. And number one is this, we have to know and crave the Word of God. My guess is as I was rattling off some of these scriptures related to the love of money and caring for the poor and sexual purity and prohibitions against drunkenness, many of you knew those verses. And many of you had no idea whatsoever what I was talking about. You're, you're just kind of taking my word for it. I'm the preacher, I'm the guy that's wearing the tie, so you're just going to take my word for it. And that has to stop. That has to stop. That has to stop today. You have to have a passion to know and to crave God's word. Psalm 119.11 says, Your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119.105, we, we sang it, first service, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, I love the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2, Peter puts these words into practice. He says, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So what am I saying? I'm saying if the only Bible you're getting is during the sermon every Sunday morning, go home today and make a commitment to read one chapter a day starting today. Go to the book of Proverbs, and in one month, one month from today, you'll be through the book of Proverbs. If you're really feeling convicted, and you're really wanting to know more, say, about Jesus, which would be a good conviction and a good idea, by the way, go home today and say, I'm going to read three chapters a day from the Gospel of John, and you can come back next week and tell me all about the Jesus you never knew from the Gospel of John. He will rock your world. Know and crave the Word of God. But number two, we can't just know it. We can't just crave it. We have to be willing to submit to the Word of God. Number two, submit to the Word of God. And this is where it kind of gets dicey for a lot of us. Because God's Word can really be challenging, can it? Um, when Jesus talks about just being radical in terms of our generosity... Selling things that we owe and give to the poor. I get nervous when I read that. I just got to be honest with you. I think things like, well, you know, I don't really have that much stuff. So he must be talking to the really rich people. The people that have a lot of stuff. But guess what? In terms of the world, I am the really rich. And you are. 
many of you, the really rich. I think the statistic we uncovered last year was that if you live in a house and you have a car and your toilet flushes, you're in the top 3% of wealth in the world. That's not a lot, quite honestly. A house, a car, and a toilet that flushes? I mean, I don't know anybody that uses an outhouse. Everyone I know has a toilet that flushes. I mean, we're pretty blessed. We really are. James 1.22 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And that's where the rubber hits the road. That's where a lot of people really, I think, lose their way. They start off with great intentions. They start out with, with, a, with a great passion to do the right thing, to be the person God wants them to be. And they start diving into God's word, and, man, it's just hard. I had a person um, in a previous ministry that I was spending a lot of time with trying to lead to the Lord, and they were hungry, and they, they loved reading in the Gospels. But um, he's in a situation just very promiscuous with his girlfriend. And just one day just kind of came to me, kind of in tears, and he said, you're going to try to get me to stop sleeping with my girlfriend, aren't you? That's where this is going. And I said, I'm going to try to get you to become a Christ follower. He said, yeah, 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 but if I become a Christ follower, I can't live like that, can I? And I said, not according to the Bible that I read. And I never saw him again, quite honestly. He made the decision that James 1.22 was just too difficult. Let me conclude with this. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we've talked a lot about the Sermon on the Mountain today, talked about, he ended it with a parable. A wise man who built his house on the rock and a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the same thing happened to both guys. Both guys faced the storms of life. And there's a lesson in there for all of us because we're all at some point going to face the storms of life. But the man who built his house on the sand, the storm came and man, it just destroyed his house. The, the, the house just went goodbye. But the house that was built on the rock stood firm. When you know and crave God's word, when you put God's word into practice, you are building your house on the rock. Build your house, your spiritual house, on the rock. Our authority comes only from the word of God. We speak where the Bible speaks. And we're silent where the Bible's silent. Let's pray. God, thanks for today. And uh, thank you for the opportunity just to be in your presence, to worship. I thank you for just the difference that Jesus makes. And, and I'm just so thankful that we live in America where we have your word. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. We're able to read truth. And I'm the first one to admit, sometimes we read that truth and it is hard to accept. It's difficult to put into practice. Our culture tells us otherwise. Sometimes our friends tell us otherwise. Sometimes our family, those that we're closest to, tell us otherwise. But we're called to be a people of truth, to be a people of the book, to know, to crave, to put into practice. And so thank you so much for your revealed truth. Help us to never be content with just a, a 25-minute sermon. Help us to be hungry for your word. We love you. We thank you for these ancient words. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
if the Bible is not your final authority, we would invite you forward to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and to, to make the Bible your final authority. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and this is the first time you've heard about the Bible. We would invite you to see myself or Greg or any of the other ministerial staff and, and see us this week. Maybe you've just had trouble.